Another end of the world is possible. This is hell and the threat of carbon-emitting fossil fuel corporations and their contributions to ending the world through climate change is now a collaboration between those corporations, local governments, private militarized security companies, and law enforcement. That's right. In the fight against climate change, the cops, specifically a National Trade Association of Sheriffs, are siding with the fossil fuel companies that are causing climate change and against activists who are trying to save us all from global warming. Police who are supposed to be protecting and serving the public are now, instead, protecting and serving the interests of fossil fuel concerns that are actually endangering the public's safety. You may rem remember us discussing this issue with The Intercept's Will Parrish way back in 2017 when previously secret documents revealed the security contractor Tiger Swan's war on terror tactics that they used against da Dakota Access Pipeline protesters. But back then, we were still a bit uncertain about the extent of the relationship between the security contractor and energy transfer partners who were constructing the pipeline. Now, however, more documents have been released, and that relationship is now in sharper focus. Worse, moving forward, Tiger Swan's relationship with energy transfer partners, that may become the norm. From now on, privatized and militarized organizations filled with former elite military members will seek profits by supporting the burning of more and more fossil fuels, contributing to climate change and environmental destruction on a planetary level with help from our now militarized police. Today, returning to This Is Hell is independent journalist Aline Brown, whose work focuses on environmental justice issues. Her most recent article, co-written with Naveen Sadas-Nivan, is titled Oil and Water After Spying on Standing Rock, Tiger Swan Shopped Anti-Protest Counterinsurgency to Other Oil Companies. The investigation of collaboration with the online environmental outlet Grist is based on more than 50,000 pages of documents that were recently made public after 
Energy Transfer Partners, the company behind the Dakota Access Pipeline, lost a court case to keep them secret. Aline has worked as an education reporter in Minnesota, as well as having worked with The Intercept. Her work has been published by The Nation, In These Times, Yes Magazine, and various Twin Cities publications. You can follow Aline on Twitter at Aline Brown. That's A-L-L-E-E-N Brown. This is Aline's second appearance on This Is Hell. She was on the show back in February 2021 when we spoke with her and her co-author Akila Lacey about uh, an Intercept article. State legislatures make unprecedented push on anti-protest bills. Since the day of the Capitol insurrection, nearly a fifth of states moved bills that would crack down on protests. And as expected, that crackdown on protests following January 6th has led to, you guessed it, a crackdown on all protests, including those against climate change, as Aline and Akila two years ago said it would. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood. Richard, how are you? It's been a couple of weeks. What have you been up to? Yes, sir. I've been doing well. I had a kind of fun experience yesterday. I was driving back from my mom's in Pittsburgh uh-huh. and during the rain and snow storm and one of my windshield wipers broke off my car and flew off in the middle of the highway. It was brilliant. <laughs> You're kidding me. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Like the whole thing or no, just the just, wiper? just the wiper blade. So, so yeah. But luckily it wasn't raining as bad at that moment. So I was able to pull off to a local town in Warren, Ohio and find a car parts place and get new ones. But it was it was it was a pretty uh, exciting moment there. When a few years ago, we were going to get a Christmas tree during a huge snowstorm, and one of our windshield wipers flew off, and I was afraid, and we had to use the windshield wipers. Yeah. You know, so I got out of the car and I pulled the windshield wiper away from the window, right? Because I didn't want it to scratch the yes, window. Exactly. So we drove over to some place to get it replaced, and the whole time I'm just looking at that windshield wiper, and the, when I pull in, the guy goes, "Man, you're lucky that thing didn't come." back at your window because it would have broken your window so it really freaked me out after the fact uh so more important than any of that richard what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience this week's question from hell is where are you conducting your secret war you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our facebook page you can tweet it at us you can email it to us at chuck at this is hell.com but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner of the question from hell following a moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. If your answer is our favorite, you'll get your choice of This Is Hell stuff. It's now available at thisishell.com when clicking on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Richard has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is experimental and genetically modified. I don't like either part of that. Last week, the trusted news site, the Daily (laughs) Mail, ran a story with the headline, Miracle New Hangover Cure Could Be a Probiotic. Pill full of good gut bacteria may avert nasty side effects from night on the booze. (laughs) The booze. (laughs) The article states, taking a probiotic pill before a night out could prevent a hangover and stave off alcohol's lasting ill effects, academics say. Tests on mice suggested a specially created supplement might also stop humans getting as drunk. It is packed full of, quote, good back gut bacteria, similar to a 
Yakult yogurt. But the genetically engineered pill, yet to be trialed on humans, also contains an enzyme proven to break down alcohol in the body. Experiments on mice revealed rodents, given the probiotic, absorbed less alcohol. Also, they also recovered more quickly from the effects of booze. Of the booze. <laughs> mice without the probiotic. This is the worst part. Mice without the probiotic, the control group, showed signs of drunkenness just 20 minutes after exposure to alcohol. When the drunk mice were placed were also placed on their backs, they were unable to get back on their feet. <laughs> but the mice who received a probiotic, half were still able to turn themselves over an hour after alcohol exposure. That makes this week's Hangover Cure an experimental, experimental genetically engineered probiotic pill. Maybe, but definitely, if you are a mouse who regularly gets flat on your ass drunk. And <laughs> like Richard said earlier, this week's question from hell is, where are you conducting your secret war? Uh, Will uh, Ippen, new producer Dan Kugler, and I came up with it following our interview with the Brennan Center's Catherine Jan Ebright, who was on the show to talk about her study, Secret War, how the U.S. uses partnerships and proxy forces to wage wars under the radar. That conversation is worth going back to listen to because... Despite having a supposedly free press here in the United States, arguably the most important part of governance, engaging in mili military in war, is not being reported. It's not being covered by the media because the Pentagon and CIA are keeping those wars secret from the public, which is incredibly undemocratic. Think about that for a moment. The Pentagon and CIA are supposed to be defending democracy. They send military service members all over the world to make the ultimate sacrifice for democracy. But democracy apparently stops at the front door of the Pentagon. Transparency, which is the beating heart of democracy, flat lines when the military and the CIA get in involved. It's, it's almost as if there has been a military coup, or worse. Even way back in 1960, President Eisenhower, a former general himself and Supreme Allied Commander during World War II, warned everyone this was going to happen. During his farewell address before leaving the White House after serving two terms in office, Eisenhower said, In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. The only thing he got wrong seems to be that arms manufacturers definitely sought that influence over policy, and that vast expansion of its influence was rubber-stamped by the executive and legislative branches. Ike couldn't stop the war industry, and now anyone who even suggests cutting any part of the Pentagon's budget is labeled un-American, unpatriotic, and not supporting the troops. You know, the same troops the military and CIA deploy to fight their secret wars that they keep secret, even from members of Congress, who are supposed to have the sole power to declare war, and even keep those secrets present from the president, who has no idea of exactly where U.S. troops are currently at war or who they are fighting against. As Catherine explained, President Obama tried to get that information so he could release it to the public, but failed. With that kind of secrecy and the horrible image that democracy has attained through the U.S. war on terror, whose mission it was to force the world at the end of the barrel of a gun through armed military threat to become a U.S.-style democracy, it should be of no surprise to anyone that whatever allure the version of democracy we have had around the world is, is quickly disappearing. 
The military acts undemocratically, then goes to wars that are not declared in a democratic fashion, and then commits wars in ways that makes whoever is supposedly being liberated actually hate the kind of U.S.-style democratic freedom that is being imposed on them through force, leaving their nation destroyed and vulnerable to the safety, security, and stability that is promised by authoritarians. So how could our question from hell this week not be, where are you conducting your secret war? I mean, if the military-industrial complex can secretly declare secret wars, why can't we do the same thing as citizens of the United States? All that said, we got an answer to last week's question from hell a little late. Last week's question was, who would you like to see indicted and why? We had already announced last week's winner, Andy H., who said Ron DeSantis's mom. You know why. When we got one more reply. This one is from Douglas M., who said the person they wanted indicted is me. Douglas writes, why do I want to see, who do I want to see indicted? You, Chuck, because it's always an inspiration. When you bounce back from rock bottom and those charges will never stick anyway. And I already made up a whole bunch of these free Chuck t-shirts. And hey, I'm a freelance journalist, musician in Traverse City, Michigan. I love TIH and I'm eager to contribute if I can, transcripts, tunes, whatever. Douglas. So thanks, Douglas. We will keep you in mind for a work on the show that can be done remotely. But right now, we are currently looking for producers who can be here in person at our studio. And we'll tell you a little bit more about that following our guest. It's also great to know Douglas is listening in TC, Traverse City, up in the pinky of God's Little Mitten, Michigan's Lower Peninsula. The city hosts the aptly named Traverse City Film Festival at the end of July every year. The founder and president of the festival is a past This Is Hell guest, Michael Moore, who directed the films Bowling for Columbine, Sicko, Roger and Me, Where to Invade Next, Capitalism, A Love Story, and Fahrenheit 911. So it kind of makes sense that someone in TC would be listening. And Douglas, good to hear there is. As for Douglas and Travers saying it's always an inspiration when I bounce back from rock bottom, maybe an inspiration for you, but it's a pain in the ass for me, Douglas. And despite the hell I've gone through over the past couple of years, I still haven't hit rock bottom. I got close when I nearly died last year from sepsis and ended up spending over two weeks in the hospital. But the worst part of that was, okay, second worst part is almost dying was definitely the worst part. The second worst part of that was being unable to do the show for over two months. During that time, we lost a significant portion of our Patreon patrons, which is not good when we are trying to be a completely listener-supported operation that actually rewards all staff members with a living wage. But I'm nearly... But if if me nearly dying, Douglas, if that inspires you to, I don't know, become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash this is health, fan-freaking-tastic. And Douglas, if you have any extra free Chuck t-shirts lying around, please send them to us because uh, they would make great giveaways at our annual listener appreciation party in July when we are celebrating This Is Hell's 27th anniversary of being on air. Coming up. Law enforcement's collaboration with fossil fuel companies against anti-climate change protests. Richard will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what happened during last week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. Plus this week in Rotten History. And we'll tell you about our upcoming guests here on the show. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell. 
if you are an activist who protests climate change, and let's say you participated in the Standing Rock protest against the Dakota Access Pipeline that started in April 2016 and lasted 10 months up until, where is that? Yeah, 10 months up until February 2017. It's very likely your privacy has been invaded by a private militarized security company called Tiger Swan who were hired by the corporation behind constructing the Pipeline Energy Transfer Partners. Hell, even if you weren't at the protests yourself and all you did was share your support repeatedly online with your large social media following, you too may have been the target of surveillance. Here to uh, get us caught up on what happened at Standing Rock and what it means for the future of directly protesting corporations that contribute to climate change that actually wants to increase that contribution, returning to This Is Hell's independent journalist, Aline Brown, whose work focuses on environmental justice issues, her most recent article is co-written with Naveen Sadasivan, and it's titled Oil and Water, After Spying on Standing Rock, Tiger Swan Shopped Anti-Protest Counterinsurgency to Other Oil Companies. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Aline. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be back. It's great to have you back on the show. This is a great follow-up to our last conversation as they're very related. Again, the last time we were on, we talked to you about an article, state legislatures make unprecedented push on anti-protest bills. To what extent do you think people who are, you know, self-proclaimed liberals who said that they wanted to have all these uh, new uh, legislation for anti-protest bills in reaction to January 6th, to what extent do you think they recognize that that kind of anti-protest bill could just blow up in their face and undermine the things that they want to protest, things like climate change? Mm, yeah, I mean, I think it's something that's pretty widely recognized on the left by now. Um, I don't know. I mean, the place where I guess I see it play out among liberals in a worrisome way is with regards to so-called domestic terrorism. Um, you know, I think sometimes when there's a mass shooting, for example, um, there's talk of like, well, we need some kind of, um, you know, domestic terrorism law on the books that because you can't actually like charge someone with domestic terrorism um, on a federal level, there are terrorism enhancements that can be applied to uh, people's sentences, but there's not like a domestic terrorism crime. Um, you know, in Georgia, they did pass, they do have um, a domestic terrorism charge um, that was expanded a few years ago. And now we're seeing how that works with the um, cop city protesters in Atlanta. Um, you know, I, I think more than a couple dozen people now, I'm not totally sure, have been charged um, with domestic terrorism and or arrested under um, domestic terrorism charges. Uh, so, you know, I think things like that are always very dangerous. Yeah. And domestic terrorism just seems like such a slippery slope here in Chicago back in around, I think, 2015, 2016, there was discussion about labeling uh, gang members as domestic terrorists. And a lot of people pointed out that that's the, that's the, that's the slippery slope. That's what we're heading towards, where anybody can be uh, labeled a domestic terrorist, and all of a sudden they're a national security threat. You write a new business model for breaking down environmental movements was being hatched in real time. On Labor Day weekend in 2016, 
Private security dogs in North Dakota attacked pipeline opponents led by members of the Standing Rock Sioux tribe as they approached earth-moving equipment. The tribal members considered the land sacred and the heavy equipment was breaking ground to build the Dakota Access Pipeline. With a major public relations crisis on its hands, the pipeline's parent company, Energy Transfer Partners, hired the firm Tiger Swam to revamp its security strategy. So is this all because security dogs were unleashed upon the protesters, which is horrible, or was there more to it? Had energy transfer security uh, taken more and possibly worse actions against the protesters, leading to them hiring Tiger Swan? Mm, I mean, I think we don't know everything. there. I mean, of course, we don't know everything there is to know about what these other security firms were doing on the ground before Tiger Swan arrived. Um, I would say for energy transfer, the concern was bad PR, you know, like there was these images all over the internet of um, dogs biting indigenous people. It's not, it's not a good look. Um, So I think that was the, their main response. I mean, one thing that did come out of this uh, set of records that we're going to be talking about is that uh, Tiger Swan was not the only company using uh, strategy, using this range of strategies that included, um, human so human intelligence use of informants um infiltration of movements um social media monitoring imminent so using um photos often aerial photography to uh keep an eye on protesters and water protectors um so i think some of the tactics that we'll discuss that tiger swan used uh were kind of pre-existing before they arrived so is there and i'm i'm Pretty sure you don't really have an answer for this. I, I apologize for actually even saying that. But has Tiger Swan been any less abusive to protesters than the previous security was? Do we have any idea if they're any more or less abusive than previous security that was protecting the Dakota Access Pipeline? I mean, I think the scale of the movement expanded dramatically from um, those dog attacks on Labor Day weekend to... Um, you know, by by December, there were times when there was thousands of people in these camps, these pipeline resistance camps. So Tiger Swan um, had, you know, a much bigger opportunity, I guess, to use kind of deceptive and invasive tactics against um, pipeline op- opponents. So and, you know, I mean, if we're thinking about kind of physically violent forms of force. Uh, one of the most, the I think the most notorious incident at Standing Rock beyond the dog attacks actually did not come from a private security company. It came from law enforcement, spraying water hoses on water protectors at night in um, below freezing temperatures. Um, you know, a lot of people were injured uh, that night in November. So uh, I think, you know, it's important to look at the whole scene here and you know, not focus too much on Tiger Swan, although they're, the tactics they use are, are important. We have a really um, unprecedented window into what they were doing, but they were working closely with law enforcement. And, um, you know, it was this whole uh, 
solar system of uh, private security and um, various sheriff's offices that were that were using uh, a range of aggressive tactics there. And you write that by uh, October, Tiger Swan, founded by James Reese, a retired commander of the elite Special Operations Army Unit Delta Force, had established a military-style pipeline security strategy. So is this the war on terror coming home and now the same tactics and technology is being aimed at U.S. citizens who are exercising their constitutionally protected right to free speech and assembly? Are these strategies uh, uh, from an undemocratic illegal war that are now enforcing anti-democratic tactics that violate the Constitution at home? Is this the war on terror come home? Yeah, I mean, I think this is war on terror strategies being adapted for um, U.S. soil. Um, you know, James Reese formed this company in the midst of the so-called war on terror um, during this big private security firm, private security boom, um, where companies like Blackwater took off. Uh, Tiger Swan was born of that moment, and a lot of the uh, people that worked for Tiger Swan were special forces military members. Um, you know, many had spent years abroad and were coming back and, you know, an opportunity for a job that where they could use um, their most sophisticated skills without having to go to Iraq or Afghanistan uh, must have been very appealing. Um, and, you know, in Afghanistan in particular, um, the, a lot of the strategy centered around counterinsurgency. So that's this range of tactics that is not only, not only includes um, kind of armed force, but also um, more kind of invasive tactics and more tactics um, that involve getting the local population on board. So, um, you know, this idea that you really want to get the people that live in a place to kind of take on your um, your goals. And I think at Standing Rock, um, working with law enforcement was a big part of that. You also point out that uh, energy transfer uh, hiring Tiger Swan for pipeline security. You write how there was one nagging problem that threatened to unravel it all. James Reese, the retired commander of the elite uh, Army unit uh, Delta Force, hadn't acquired a security license from the North Dakota Private Investigation and Security Board. Although Reese claimed Tiger Swan was, wasn't conducting security services at all, which is weird because they're actually defined as an international security and global stability firm, uh, the state regulator insisted that its operations were unlawful and without a license. So what does that reveal to you about energy transfer par uh, partners or about Tiger Swan when they don't even consider be being licensed when they're going to be involved in security, despite the fact it's common knowledge that they are a security firm? What, what does that reveal to you about energy transfer partners and Tiger Swan when they simply deny the fact that they are a security form firm in order to avoid having any type of regulation, licensing, or oversight? I mean, I think it definitely reveals a level of arrogance, um, you know, that they should just be able to do these things without oversight. Um, you know, I think it also says something about or gives a hint at the state of kind of, um, I guess, the way that the private security industry is underregulated. You know, I think, you know, if they had gotten a license, they could 
basically do most of the tactics that we're we're talking about you know it's not there's nothing that really prevents a company from um walking into a protest movement and pretending to be a part of it in order to gather intelligence so you know the the licensing is really like a thin guardrail and um but it is quite remarkable that tiger swan didn't and and energy transfer didn't even um you know fulfill that that one requirement and you mentioned that Tiger Swan turned to Jonathan Thompson, the head of the National Sheriff's Association, a trade group representing uh, sheriffs for help. You then quote Sean Sweeney, Tiger Swan's senior vice president, writing to Thompson that the security board, quote, has a problem understanding and staying within their charter. Sweeney asked if Thompson could discuss possible political measures to apply pressure that will assist in the entire project's success. So, I mean, the first time I ever heard of the National Sheriff's Association was back in 2017 when we were talking to Will Parrish about this. But, you know, so I I doubt that a lot of people even know that there is a Sheriff's Trade Association. How much power and influence does the Sheriff's Trade Association have? I mean, I think... um... They have they've I think they've played an increasingly important role as we've seen these big protest movements um, take hold, especially um, movements that have involved confrontations with law enforcement, um, you know, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, for example. Um, So, you know, at Standing Rock, it was really striking in these materials to see how closely uh, the Sheriff's Association was working and communicating with Tiger Swan. Um, you know, I think it just indicates a level of comfort working with private industry um, as uh, both industry and law enforcement confront what they both apparently believe to be political opponents, Um, you know, and I think that is an incredibly powerful force um, when combined. Uh, based on the documents that have been released so far, what does energy transfer partners, what do they not want the public to know about the security services they use to confront, or used to confront the Standing Rock protesters? Is this just about public relations, and does hiring Tiger Swan lead to better optics for energy transfer partners? Mm, yeah. I mean, um, energy transfer, which changed their name a few years ago. So they dropped the partners, which, you know, whatever. Um, so they uh, um, they did not want they really didn't want us to have any of this material. Um, you know, this was material that was turned over via a discovery process in um, an administrative um, kind of legal complaint that the security board had made against uh, uh, Tiger Swan for operating without a license. So as soon as this entered the public record, energy transfer started demanding that the documents be returned to them. Um, the Intercept fought a prolonged kind of, kind of legal bat- battle to assure that these would remain public records. Um, energy transfer did not want this stuff to be out. Um, we won the legal battle. Uh, so far, we have more than 50,000 pages of documents that we're going through. And yeah, they provide really an unprecedented window into um, a fossil fuel company's counterinsurgency style strategy for going after 
uh, land and water de defenders. Um, you know, they describe in detail the way the company used aerial surveillance, radio eavesdropping, lots of social media monitoring, um, infiltration in order to um, both uh, gather intelligence for uh, to present to their client um, to show that there was a threat and their business was really needed. Um, and also to use in marketing materials as well as propaganda. So um, another thing that Tiger Swan was involved in was creating um, kind of localized Facebook pages um, that were meant to appear to be by and for local community members portraying uh, water protectors as dangerous. Um, so again, this gets into that counterinsurgency counterinsurgency strategy and wanting to um, convince the local community to be on the side of the pipeline. Um, you know, they were also, again, working with law enforcement and hoping to, um, hoping that their intelligence collection would lead to legal consequences for the movement. Um, we know that eventually Energy Transfer filed this big RICO lawsuit, which is um, as a kind of statute, I guess, that's typically used against or that was made to be used against the mob um, to claim that Greenpeace sort of dreamed up this movement as a way to uh, kind of make money for the organization, um, which is a pretty preposterous idea. Um, so we know Tiger Swan was helping uh, build an early version of what would become that Greenpeace suit. Um, so, you know, this intelligence collection was not just to keep everybody safe. It was for all these other purposes, essentially to keep the client able to conduct its business and continue making profits. And the client is a pipeline company um, that wants to pump oil across several states. Um, you know, we know that the consequences of burning fossil fuels are uh, clim the climate crisis and a really difficult to control um, weather patterns, flooding patterns, wildfires, all these things. So um, yeah, so there's really serious consequences to um, a company like Tiger Swan using these tactics. So were they effective in shifting public opinion? Is there any evidence that Tiger Swan's work led to more support for the Dakota Access Pipeline and more opposition to the Standing Rock protesters? Mm, you know, that's hard to measure, I think, because I think broadly, I would say that um, water protectors had a pretty big leg up on, um, I guess, storytelling because there was such a diverse array of people. You know, thousands of people came to the pipeline resistance camps at Standing Rock and, you um, you know, we're posting on social media, we're telling um, a story about, um, you know, indigenous people confronting a giant fossil fuel company that was that stood to pollute their drinking water source. Um, I think that uh, the fossil fuel company's PR strategy, I don't know that it could quite compare to that. Um, but, you know, if you're looking at, I'm sure that there were successes um, within the surrounding um, white 
pretty rural community, um, which probably what I, you know, I know there were people in that community that were frustrated by, um, by this movement and by a bunch of outsiders coming um, from all over the place to support the Standing Rock Sioux tribe. Um, so I don't think I, I would, <laughs> I would argue that um, they weren't successful in, in changing um, people's perspective nationally or in internationally, but um, they may have had successes locally and like on Fox News. I don't know. You write that out because you don't watch. <laughs> you write Tigers. You write Tiger Swan did not just work in North Dakota. Energy Transfer hired the company to provide security to the Rover pipeline in Ohio and West Virginia. The documents confirmed by spring 2017, Tiger Swan was also assembling intelligence reports on opponents of Energy Transfer and Sunoco's Mariner East 2 pipeline in Pennsylvania. So do fossil fuel companies increasingly need private militarized organizations to protect pipelines as climate change and anti-fossil fuel activism grows? Because back in 2021, we had several time guests, uh, Andreas Malm on the show to talk about his book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Although Andreas pointed out that many activists were upset with him because, in fact, in the book, he does not describe how to blow up a pipeline. But the logic behind a more uh, a militant response to climate change and the uh, pursuit of fossil fuels is what he was advancing. That nonfiction book has now been fictionalized. It's become a movie of the same name about activists debating what they now believe desperately needs to be done as fossil fuel consumption continues to climb every year, except for the first year of the pandemic. So in the anti-fossil fuel climate, if you will, do companies like energy transfer need to military militarize their security in order to protect fossil fuel extraction and distribution is this what is necessary because of the success of climate change protesters and activists mm, i don't know that it's i i would never say that it's necessary i guess um and i don't know that tiger so tiger swan um was essentially making the argument we find in these documents that uh their services were totally necessary. You know, a lot of the material we reviewed included um, these uh, sort of business development tools, PowerPoint presentations, kind of making an argument that the movement at Standing Rock was going to spread, you know, camps like this were going to pop up all over the place. And Tiger Swan's suite of strategies um, were really what was needed. You know, they were like kind of naming threat actors in other places, confronting other pipelines, um, and saying, you know, again, that their um their strategy uh was was required at this at this stage in history. And they were making very broad kind of assessments about yeah, the movement and where things were going. And um, you know, ultimately, I don't think that they were all that successful. And you know, I would like to think that our reporting had something to do with that, but you know, I also I I also don't know if the demand was there that they hoped would be there. Um, you know, and I think also these companies are very worried about, you know, a prime area that they're fighting is in storytelling. And um the story of a militarized security firm coming in at Standing Rock is not the one that they're they're hoping to have told. Um, you know, I think a good example to look toward is um, what came next in Minnesota, 
um, as water protectors, some of whom had been at Standing Rock, uh, confronted the Line 3 pipeline. Um, you know, in Minnesota, um, Enbridge, as well as law enforcement, was absolutely looking to Standing Rock as both uh, as kind of a warning sign. They didn't want another Standing Rock. And so um, one of the things uh, that both the company and the state did kind of together is that they set up a an account so that the pipeline company would refund law enforcement for any activity they did related to uh, the pipeline resistance movement. So, you know, a lot of critics argued that in Minnesota, law enforcement took on the role of um, a militarized private security force, um, you know, and it was kind of incorporated into what the state was doing. So I think that... You know, on the one hand, there have not been regulatory reforms that would prevent a company like Tiger Swan from popping up and doing the same things elsewhere. And I think they are in some form, including internationally, um, not necessarily Tiger Swan itself, but um, other kinds of companies. Uh, I, you know, I think of Guatemala, for example, as a place where um, ex-paramilitary folks um, have been implicated in um, assassinations of land and water defenders. Um, but, you know, I think we also have to be wary that this kind of thing evolves, you know, these companies always learn from, um, from what happens and um, shapeshift. Oh, that's really interesting. The shapeshift idea of that is really interesting. We are speaking with Aline Brown, an independent journalist whose most recent article is Oil and Water After Spying on Standing Rock, Tiger Swan Shopped Anti-Protest Counterinsurgency in Other Oil Companies. So, I mean, this... It makes sense, as you were pointing out earlier. Here are these people who come back from the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, or wherever the war on terror is being fought. They learn and now have the skill of war on terror tactics. They come back to the United States. They're looking for work. Now that they have this skill, it makes sense that they would try to implement it into a way to make a living, to have a career, to run a business. But is, is this in any way... I don't know, I just kept thinking about how this is kind of a, a scam, a kind of a, a con based on exaggerations and, you know, uh, stoking fear amongst oil companies. In any way, can, can is there any evidence that would suggest that this isn't the appropriate way to uh, protect a uh, pipeline? I'm not talking about from the you know, protesters' perspective, but from the company's perspective, that this isn't the right way to protect a, a pipeline, and that this is not the only way that it should be responded to militarily. Is this a, a scam perpetrated by fear and stoking paranoia? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, the companies are certainly worried about physical attacks on their um, infrastructure. But I think a primary realm in which they are fighting their bat battles is in terms of like PR and storytelling. So I always go back to that, you know, they don't want to be the baddies um, and they're fighting very hard to not to be, you know, you see all now the new thing now that kind of the battle over whether climate change is real has been won by, you know, scientists. Um the new kind of PR and marketing that's going around is kind of trying to portray fossil fuel companies as eco-friendly. And um, so I think 
they're probably quite aware that um, mercenary security firms are not don't fit into the image that they're trying to put forth. Um, I think what does fit into the image they're trying to put forth is to um, portray people who um, block, you know, workers access to um, polluting infrastructure construction projects, for example, as eco-terrorists, that fits great into the storytelling. So um, again, I think that I would imagine that they um, they don't want ti another tiger swan uh, to happen, but they want a more sophisticated form of storytelling. So did the protest end at uh, Dakota Access Pipeline? Did the Standing Rock protest end because of energy transfers and Tiger Swan's militarized war on terror response? Did that play a role in ending that protest or was it just through brute force? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think that... Um, I think that there's still some investigation that needs to be done to fully understand what happened. I think in the end, it was absolutely brute force that led to the camps being evicted. Um, but, you know, whether a lot of whether the kind of paranoia that comes with having a company like Tiger Swan operating in your midst um, helped undermine people's ability to organize effectively, that I can't answer. Um you know, and I guess I would just say that in terms of infiltration, this is something that we we've covered in this now 18 part series that this new story is a part of. Um, you know, I heard a lot of concern from folks that there was an infiltrator, someone posing as a water protector, but actually working for the company around every corner. But in reality, what we've seen is that there were like a small handful of people sometimes going into the camps or hanging out at the casinos like the saturation wasn't there that a lot of people had in their heads but um you know i think kind of having lights bright lights shining on you down from the hills this like militarized law enforcement force in the corner a concern that there are infiltrators in this militarized um, private security force hanging around i think that wears on people's um you know, mental health to some degree, and it makes it hard to organize. So I think in the end, brute force and uh, law enforcement led eviction is what shut down um, the anti-pipeline camps. Um, but um, I, I don't know. I don't know how much um, Tiger Swan played a role in all that, you know. So there are now new laws in 19 states to allow collaboration between law enforcement and those contributing to climate change. But there are no new laws when it comes to limiting the militarized strategy of fossil fuel concerns, ability to undermine, if not stop, protests. As climate change continues and gets worse and worse, do you think it will become more difficult to protest those responsible for climate change? How endangered is protesting against climate change? Are fossil fuel corporations canceling climate change activists? Um, I mean, I would say absolutely not. Like, I think that the threat of the climate crisis is so severe that people are going to continue to rise up. And, you know, like these movements also have some level of sophistication and learning from um, past incidents. And so I think that, um, you know, people's strategies are going to evolve and, um, 
you know, there's no shortage of people that will step up and confront um, these fossil fuel companies. I think one thing that is a question is how much kind of um, trauma and like legal repercussions might be attached to that stuff. And that is, you know, that's a real concern. These are like actual people who are standing up for what they believe to be right. And, you know, if what they're confronting is um, a militarized security force that's using um, really deceptive tactics that mess with your head. Um, that's a real, I think, human rights concern to some degree. Um, and, uh, yeah. And similarly, if they're facing, um, laws that are going to land them with longer jail sentences, or at least more expensive legal fights, um, that also has a, um, there's a concern that that could have a chilling effect. Again, I don't think that there's a shortage of people that will step up, but it matters that um, those who do may face um, consequences that, that don't seem quite right. So one of the narratives that was being pushed, I, I saw it in the media all the time, and we've been mentioning it today, is that outsiders were the people who were causing all of the trouble at Standing Rock. That was the narrative that they were trying to push. You quote a February 27, 2017 email drafted by Tiger Swan employees to a regional office at Conoco Phillips, a major oil and gas producer, and a potential Tiger Swan client. The Tiger Swan email states, gentlemen, as you are aware, there has been a shift in environmentalist and First Nations groups regarding the tactics being used to prevent, deter, or interrupt the oil and gas industry. So what impact do you think indigenous peoples leading actions against climate change has on the narrative about pipelines that the fossil fuel industry is trying to control? What does it mean to the fossil fuel industry? How much of a threat is it that these actions are actually indigenous-led? I mean, I think one of the important things there is the fact that indigenous people do actually have treaty rights. You know, there are laws around the land that these companies want to operate on that they have to contend with. So, you know, if there's a growing movement led by indigenous people against their projects, um, that's a specific kind of problem because they not only you know, again, we get back to this like storytelling thing. Not only is it a story that they want to contend with, but they also have to contend with um, the laws of the land. You know, I think that treaty rights still get railroaded a lot of the time, but they, um, but, you know, a lot of people are really standing up and um, fighting to have their treaty rights upheld. So, you know, and in my some of my other reporting, I've seen how um, these fossil fuel companies have um, responded in a way that indicates that they do really see this as a as a threat. Um, you know, a lot of their um, kind of community work, I guess, um, has increasingly focused around um, indigenous communities and kind of developing allies within them so that they um, have the political force needed to advance their projects. You know, you see that in Canada a lot too, um, kind of deals made with um, First Nations um, to kind of give them some some kind of a cut in um, the, the profits of the company um, or uh, 
kind of an ownership stake. Um, so I think the company, these companies are finding all kinds of ways to target indigenous communities and, you know, not only with the kind of militarized force that we saw at Standing Rock, but with these more subtle techniques. You write of the head of Tiger Swan, Reese, uh, you write that Reese used similar material to shore up his relationship with existing clients. In December 2016, he requested a copy of a presentation titled Strategic Overview, which he hoped to send to energy transfer supervisors working on building the Rover natural gas pipeline. The presentation, a version of which The Intercept previously published, draws heavily from a 2014 report by the Republican minority staff of the Senate Committee on Environment and Public Works, claiming that a club of billionaires control the environmental movement. Is there any evidence to prove that accurate? We know billionaires get rich off of climate change. Is the movement against climate change also enriching billionaires just like fossil fuels? Is this a win-win situation for billionaires? I mean, I think that is an incredibly big stretch, you know, I mean, like, uh, I think we can all agree that billionaires have more influence in all realms, realms of our lives than we would like. Um, but, uh, you know, this movement was fueled by, um, you know, members of the Standing Rock Sioux tribe um, who were kind of putting themselves um, in really hard living systems situations for months in order to fight this pipeline, as well as, um, you know, thousands of other um, individuals who who wanted to support um, people fighting for their rights to clean water and, um, and treaty rights. Um, you know, I find it hard to imagine that um, any billionaire would uh, see something like Standing Rock as a big, like, investment for themselves or a great way to to enrich themselves. You mentioned that Tiger Swan's obsessive tracking of environmental activists is laid out in detail in the North Dakota documents. Assisted at times by National Sheriff's Association personnel, the company targeted little-known water protectors, national nonprofits, and even legal workers. The first page of a template for intelligence sharing encouraged Tiger Swan employees to enter information about any, quote, new person of interest. Tiger Swan's personnel routinely referred to its targets as EREs, short for Environmental Rights Extremists, apparently a version of the Department of Homeland Security's classification of animal rights environmental violent extremism as one of five domestic terrorism threat categories. So does the Department of Homeland Security view those who protest against climate change as extremists, even terrorists, just for protesting? Is the Department of Homeland Security has it become a, a department to focus on or to label anybody who the government or corporations doesn't like within the United States as an extremist or terrorist? Um, I mean, I think the existence of those labels kind of helps encourage um, that, that kind of uh, thinking. Um, again, the best example we have right now is um, Cop City in Atlanta. Um, again, all these people have been charged um, under Georgia's domestic terrorism law. And, you know, for a different story for Grist, I reviewed a bunch of the arrest warrants for folks who had, um, you know, gotten these charges. And, you know, in some cases, people had basically been camping in the woods, like occupying the forest in order to protect it, and were then um, given these uh, domestic terrorism charges. Um, 
you know, part of the justification from um, the arresting agency was uh, that the Department of Homeland Security had um, defined uh, their this um, very loose collective of people as um, domestic violent extremists. DHS denied to me that they um, label anyone that way. But then, um, you know, we've seen in other uh, reports, including out of Chicago, that, um, you know, uh, I guess agencies working with the local fusion centers have, in fact, um, labeled cop city opponents, domestic violent extremists, um, you know, maybe just casually in reports, but that language carries weight and um, has consequences for people on the ground. So I think it's interesting that Tiger Swan was sort of casually throwing this term around because, again, I think it's kind of one step in a longer path toward criminalization. Just a few more questions for you. You write that Tiger Swan concluded that uh, there was a regional electric cooperative that generates some of its power through wind, apparently considered a rival energy source to the oil the Dakota Access Pipeline would carry. Tiger Swan also put together a whole PowerPoint presentation on Joseph Haythorn, who also worked for the Legal Collective and submitted bail money for clients to be released. So are not only climate change activists, but those promoting alternative clean energy being targeted by groups like Tiger Swan? with their collaboration with law enforcement? Is it not just climate change protesters, but any alternative to fossil fuel is now being targeted by this privatized, militarized response? Mm, Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think Tiger Swan, again, was not just worried about, um, about, you know, someone trying to blow up a pipeline, they were also worried about storytelling. And so, you know, I think someone advocating um, for clean energy and arguing that uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline was um, bad for the earth would be the kind of thing that, you know, a company doing PR for energy transfer, which Tiger Swan was, would want to push back on. Um, You know, in this case, I think, I guess part of the way that I think of them um, flagging this legal worker in that way is that, um, you know, they and other uh, companies have been interested in building these RICO suits and saying that there are, there is a big conspiracy happening, um, to uh to shut down their projects and so um if you have an actor like uh um if you have a billionaire if you have some actor that is um trying to make money that uh can be a part of that rico suit i think that makes it stronger i don't know if there have been cases where that has played a role in a rico suit but um the search for a conspiracy is um was certainly on at standing rock One last question for you, Aline. We have been speaking with independent journalist Aline Brown, whose work focuses on environmental justice issues. Her most recent article, co-written with Naveen Sadasivan, is titled Oil and Water After Spying on Standing Rock, Tiger Swan Shopped Anti-Protest Counterinsurgency to Other Oil Companies. You can follow Aline on Twitter, at Aline Brown. And uh, this is her second appearance on the show. You can find our conversation with her from back in February 2021 uh, at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on her name, Aline Brown. Uh, that article that we discussed at the time was co-written by Akila Lacey, and it's 
it's titled State Legislators, uh, State Legislatures Make Unprecedented Push on Anti-Protest Bills. One last question for you, and as always, uh, our final question for every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Now, as far as indigenous activists leading this environmental movement, this anti-climate change movement, whether it's in Canada, here in the United States, or anywhere around the world, I can imagine that that would lead to a greater understanding of and a bigger discussion about the history and legacy of colonialism. Now, New Lines Magazine, uh, they just had an opening party last night at the Chicago Theater, apparently. But a guest, uh, we had a guest from New Lines Magazine on the show, Rasha Al-Akhidi. She was on the show last week talking about being raised in Iraq during Saddam Hussein's presidency and witnessing the first five years of the war. Rasha believes the war has undermined local support for democracy after seeing what the U.S. and its military did during the invasion and occupation of Iraq. So do you think energy transfers and Tiger Swan's actions against Standing Rock protesters has had any impact on how the public views or understands what democracy we have in the United States? And do you think it has led to a reconsideration of the legacy of colonialism? Is that the real threat of the climate change movement, that it might reveal the shortcomings of U.S. style of democracy and might reveal the legacy of colonialism? Yeah, I mean, I think that was very much on the minds of especially indigenous people who were active at Standing Rock. I think a lot of people saw this as an extension of, um, you know, the U.S. and white people's like long running um, wars against indigenous people, um, you know, in some ways, ref the tactics Tiger Swan used were in some ways reflect reflective of the kind of tactics that were used um, during the so-called Indian Wars, um, you know, well over a century ago. Um, so I think that this is, um, closely linked to colonialism and I think it did, um, I think that, uh, indigenous people's fights against, um, fossil fuel companies have led a lot of people to learn about, um, treaty rights and understand better, um, indigenous people's, um, legal place, if, if nothing else in, um, in the U.S., um, you know, I also wanted to correct myself earlier. Um, this Chicago record related to Cop City protesters being labeled environmental violent extremists was an FBI document. That's really interesting. And your Chicago listeners should take a look at Adam Fetterman's piece and grist. Yeah, that's a really great article. I saw that too. Aline, thank you so much for being back on our show. I promise it's not going to be two years again before we have you on the show again. <laughs> and, and as you pointed out, this is an 18-part series. We are talking about part 18. So people can go to uh, Grist. They can find your work at uh, Grist and uh, look up Aline Brown there, and you can see all of the entire investigation. Thank you so much for being back on our show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And the whole 18-part series is at The Intercept. Um, at, it's at The thank Intercept? You. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, Aline. I appreciate it. You are here, and this is hell. Live from late capitalism, where property has more rights than people, as we just discussed, this is hell. If what you just heard from Aline on the past, present, and possible future of protesting against climate change, which doesn't look all that great, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, 
at, at patreon.com slash this is hell or you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support on last week's patreon podcast which is posted at patreon.com slash this is hell it started being about Christian nationalists in the United States and their acceptance of being born into a world of original sin while refusing to accept the original sin that is being a citizen of the United States, white, I mean, sorry, while Christian nationalists, white Christian nationalists, are in denial of our past, aiming to erase its sins from our history books, we are all to some degree in denial of our present. And that present is, uh, denial is more important in understanding why, yes, this is hell. The more you understand that we are in deep denial, no matter who we are in the United States, that's why this is hell. Meanwhile, after having Rasha Al-Akhidi of New Lines Magazine on the show and hearing her first-hand eyewitness account of what it was like growing up in Iraq under Saddam Hussein and then living through the early years of the war in Iraq, we gave Patreon patrons another perspective, another view of what life was like for women in Iraq under Saddam. So we played our talk from April 5th, 2008, 15 years earlier, with Haifa Zangana, author of City of Widows, an Iraqi woman's account of war and resistance. Unlike Rasha, Haifa was a prisoner of Saddam Hussein's regime, so very different perspective from Rasha's. But you can only hear all that by becoming a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do, you get immediate access to more than five years of Patreon podcasts, as well as a special code word that gives you a $5 discount on all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. Richard, please remind us what is this week's question from hell, and please tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Where are you conducting your secret war? (laughs) We have an answer on Discord. All right. Krim D.R. answers, If I told you the CIA or its subsidiaries might come knocking on my door. Yeah, it wouldn't be a secret war anymore. I guess you wouldn't want to tell people where your secret wars are being conducted because then they wouldn't be secret anymore. I'm waiting for that response now <laughs> for the question from hell. We have some answers on Patreon. Sweet. Uh, Tynan S. answers, in the offices of the IRS. All right. That's a weird thing. We have many deleted, <laughs> which I think they answered the... Messed up. Yeah, I posted the wrong question from hell on Patreon. Uh, I said, who are you fighting your war, or what are you fighting your war against, or something. It was just wrong. It was just wrong. So now people are answering the question correctly, finally. Where are you conducting your secret war? There you go. Andrew answers, the Human Resources Department. (laughs) God. Dean. And she's got some issues at work. Dean T answers the eighth dimension. No, really. He skipped right over the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh. That's awesome. Little drippy dentist. <laughs> I think that's dentist. DDS. Let's hope it is. A kinetic, he answers, a kinetic black mold conflict behind my toilet. <laughs> Gross. And I believe that's all we have on Patreon. On Patreon. But we have some answers. On the F book. Do you want to check it or do you want to just wait for tomorrow? We can do a few. All right, sure. Let's hear. Uh, Let's see. Sorry, I'm just checking. On the SC, Pete got right in there with, Where are you conducting your secret war? Pete answers, My pants. (laughs) God, Jesus. 
At least it wasn't my mom's pants. Or your mom's kitchen. <laughs> Either way. <laughs> David I. answers, eats East Lansing steam tunnels. You know, I don't get that one. Uh, I have spent many hours in East Lansing steam tunnels when I lived in East Lansing, committing several crimes that profited me. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Why would you want to have a war on the steam tunnels? You should look up the East Lansing steam tunnels. as a crazy history of people missing from Michigan, ended up being found dead, Dungeons and Dragons being involved. It's, it's craziness. <laughs> it's craziness. Where are you conducting your secret war? Bradley R. answers, my secret, secret war is being conducted on the John F. Kennedy conference room. Or in the John F. Kennedy conference room? Uh, I'm not, not sure. too sure. I don't even know what that is. Braden, and I'm kind of glad I don't. <laughs> Braden S. answers the opinion column of the New York Times. Now there's a great place to be conducting war. <laughs> Michael P. answers Peloponnesian ponies. Oh, all right. I don't know. Uh, I sent a video link to The Last Emperor for some reasons. So. Oh, really? That's probably involved in the whole thing. Where are you conducting your secret war? Dan K. answers the first rule of secret war club, dot, dot, dot. Uh, let's see. Tyler R. answers my liver. <laughs> That's not a secret war. My war on my liver is very out in the open. We declared that war a long time ago, <laughs> openly. Yes, we have two more. Like, where are you conducting your secret war? Cody K. answers, family reunions. <laughs> That's nice. And last for today, Neo C. answers, in my head, and I'm running low on ammo. <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question. That's a good one, Neil. Wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of any of us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer. By the end of this week's show, when we will be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth, we'll have more of your answers to the question from hell later this week. Speaking of which, Richard, what is Jeff talking about this week during the moment of truth? Jeff finds things could be better. Really? But they could be worse. <laughs> Damn it. I thought I was going to be optimistic for a second. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, Gloppy, globby, gory, this week in Rotten History. On April 16th, 1457 B.C.E., 3,480 years ago this week, which will probably explain all the celebrating that's happening this week, in the earliest military battle that modern historians view as being reliably documented, the Egyptian pharaoh Thutmose III led 10 to 20,000 chariots and infantry against an equal-sized group of Canaanite soldiers at the city of Megiddo, in what is now Israel. Thutmose outmaneuvered the Canaanites, and his men laid siege to the city for seven months until the Canaanites finally surrendered. surrendered. The pharaoh's armies later swept through Syria and Mesopotamia, killing, burning, looting, and taking prisoners. Thutmose's subjugation of Palestine was part of his bloody expansion of the Egyptian empire to its greatest geographical extent, stretching from what is now Syria all the way south to what is now Sudan. Now, many believe that the word Armageddon is derived from Megiddo, Megiddo, which was known as Har-Megiddo, Armageddon, Har-Megiddo, which means 
Hill of Megiddo. And that makes sense if you consider the scene of 20,000 chariots and infantry on each side in a battle leading to a seven-month siege. To people who witnessed it, all that, it probably did appear to be the Battle of Armageddon, the final battle between good and evil. Richard has the next Rotten History. Richard? In Rotten History, on April 18th, 1930, 93 years ago this week, it was Good Friday, the Friday before Easter, the day on which Christians commemorate the crucifixion of Jesus. And in the UK, at 8.45 p.m., a radio news program on the BBC began like this, quote, Good evening. Today is Good Friday. There is no news, unquote. <laughs> That's some journalism. The short statement was immediately followed by 15 minutes of recorded piano music to fill the radio time slot. In 1930, the BBC still received its news content from newspapers and wire services, which at the time routine, routinely went silent on Good Friday. The director of the BBC, Sir John Wrythe, who prioritized edification, that is the instruction or improvement of a person morally or intellectually over entertainment, had decreed that since the publicly funded BBC was under no commercial pressure to attract large listening audiences or sell advertising, it could afford to maintain a very high standard of newsworthiness. If events did not meet that high bar, well, that was just tough. But actually, there was news within the empire that day. In British-controlled Bengal, the area now known as Bangladesh, a group of Bengali independence fighters had just pulled a major attack on a colonial police station and arms depot. In doing so, they had cut the local telephone and telegraph lines so that news of the attack could not quickly reach the outside world. Meanwhile, in England, local news of a fire and a traffic accident was dismissed by the BBC as sensationalistic and unworthy of being broadcast. If there were no fire or traffic accident news, if there was none of that news was ever reported on local TV news here in Chicago, uh, TV news would be like six minutes long instead of 30. That's one of the leading news stories are always crime, crashes, fires. Because all journalism isn't, uh, well, TV journalism, local TV journalism is, all it is, it's just ambulance chasing. If it bleeds, it leads. If it bleeds, it leads, and if it has a siren on it, they're going to chase that siren. Finally, on April 17th, 1960, 63 years ago this week, two major artists. Here's the call back to the music that Richard was playing before the show. Two major artists in the first flowering of rock and roll. Flowering. I like that. Eddie Cochran and Gene Vincent were on tour in England and on their way back to London in a taxi cab after performing in Bristol. Thankfully, they were not in a plane and crashing like the plane crash that led to the deaths of Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, and Richie Valens. The two American musicians, Cochran and Vincent, were riding with their tour manager and with Cochran's fiance just before midnight as they were speeding through the town of Chippenham. The 19-year-old cab driver lost control of the car, which hit a concrete lamppost. Cochran was thrown from the vehicle and soon died of brain trauma after being rushed to a nearby hospital. He was just 21 
Gene Vincent survived but suffered major injuries, especially to his left leg, which had already been horribly mangled in a motorcycle accident five years earlier and had forced him to limp in pain ever since. The tour manager and Cochran's fiance were injured less seriously, and the cab driver, who was barely hurt at all, lost his license and went to jail for reckless driving. In the years that followed, many of Eddie Cochran's songs, including Summertime Blues, which Richard played before today's show, 20 Flight Rock, and Come On Everybody, became rock and roll standards covered by The Who, The Rolling Stones, Humble Pie, Blue Cheer, like the Blue Cheer reference in there, and the Sex Pistols, among others. Meanwhile, Gene Vincent, best known for his rockabilly classic Bebop Alula, carried on with his career, mostly in Europe, but the never-ending pain in his leg drove him to drink heavily, and he would die of an internal hemorrhage and heart attack in 1971 at the age of 36. Now that's rotten history, and this is hell. Richard, who's coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? Malcolm Harris, author of Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. Malcolm was on our show back in 2020 in an interview we recently featured on our week-long series, This Is Hell, The Lost Pandemic Tapes, Volume 2. When he was on, when he was on to talk about his book. Wait, wait. S is F'd up and BS. Thank you, sir. History since the end of history. It really is the best title ever for a book, but we have to censor <laughs> ourselves because the show is then played on four other, five other outlets and whatever. Malcolm had already been on the show in 2017 when we discussed another of his books, Kids These Days. Human Capital and the Making of Millennials. Both of those interviews, in both of those interviews, Malcolm is absolutely fantastic. And you got to go back. Just just go to thecell.com, search on Malcolm Harris's name, and find the 2017 uh, conversation about kids these days, uh, Human Capital and the Making of Millennials, and uh, the, st- the, one that we d- the book we discussed in 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic. S is F'd up and BS history since the end of history. And of course, we will, as always, we will have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. That's happening on tomorrow's show. How would you like to be a producer here on This Is Hell? If you can make it to our studio at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood and be here from 9.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. any one or more days, Monday through Wednesday each week, and believe in what we do on the show, you too can be a part of our crew. All you have to do is email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Specifically, we are currently looking for a producer who can cover Mondays and Tuesdays every week. And with Dan leaving, uh, Dan Hill leaving, we are seeking a regular Wednesday producer as well. However, our schedule is very flexible. And by the way, we do now have a Wednesday, we have a Tuesday and Wednesday producer. So right now, all we're looking for is a Monday producer. The duties of a producer include confirming guests in the days leading up to the show and helping them with logistics to put them on air. You will also do a guest sound check 15 minutes before airtime run the board during the live stream, and recording. Uh, Following the show, producers edit whatever is necessary, post the show and all our social media platforms, back up the show on our external hard drive, and finally prepare the show for distribution to one of our five media outlets. The whole process should take about three and a half hours. We also reward uh, producers for their services, which we will discuss if you are interested in the position. But let me tell you, what we are trying to do is provide you with a living wage. That's what we're trying to do very hard. You 
will also get a number of perks, including access to a professional studio, studio I'm in right now, for you to engage in your own projects, which we will happily promote and endorse. Do you already have a podcast but want to do it somewhere other than your acoustically challenged basement bedroom or dining room, then join us here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in joining This Is Hell, email me. Again, chuck at thisishell.com. Maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, why you like this show so much that you actually want to contribute to working on This Is Hell, or tell us how you found out about the show or the position. I'm your bitter, blind, broke guy. Yes, sir? You don't want to say a little special happy birthday? (laughs) (laughs) It's my girlie's birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) It's been another wonderful year with you, and every year you celebrate a birthday, I am happy as a clam. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, (laughs) Richard. I'm going to give you such a lump. (laughs) Live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Richard Norwood for producing. I completely forgot it was her birthday up until like two days ago, and uh, so then I decided, because I didn't have anything for her for her birthday, you know what we should do? We should probably delay your birthday celebration to the weekend. We can really have a good time. <laughs> so I can actually maybe have a little... Yeah, I bet that didn't go over well. <laughs> yeah. Thanks to Richard for producing. Look around. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down... And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>